What do you want? It's a question that we're driving forward with these days. And we talked about what do you want in your relationship with God. And this morning we talked about what do you want in character. And tonight we're going to talk about what do you want in relationships with others. I want you to do something. I want you to look at the back of the person's head in front of you. Just take a moment. I just want you to meditate on the back of their head. Just focus in on the back of their head. For some of you, you're really uncomfortable right now with somebody looking at the back of your head. If you have male pattern baldness like me, you're really (laughs) uncomfortable. I want you to think about this. For the majority of Christians, that's the extent of how they experience community within the church. Is day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, looking at the back of someone's head. And they don't even realize that perhaps the back of that person's head, that that person who they're looking at the back of their head may just be the person that could be an encouragement to them. Or that person may be the person who who helps them grow closer to God. Or that person may be the person that helps them walk through a crisis or go through cancer. That person may be the person that helps them land a job. That person may be the person that introduces them to their future spouse. That that person (laughs) may have major significance in their life, but for many people, they they never go beyond looking at the back that person's head. So we're going to do something just as a social experiment, just to show how easy it is to connect with others. What I want you to do right now, I want you to turn around and introduce yourself to the person looking at the back of their head. So... What we figured out is a couple things. The first thing is when you ask everyone to turn around, you're looking at the back of somebody else's head. That's the first thing we figured out. Second thing that we figured out is that face-to-face conversation matters more than looking at the back of someone's head, that that's a gift that God has given us in order to have relationships. He's given us that, that ability to connect and have conversation with others, but it's awkward. And that got a little awkward. For some of you, that got a little awkward. But relationships are awkward, are they not? I mean, does anybody have the spiritual gift like me of creating awkward moments? Anybody else have that spiritual gift? Anybody else just like really good at giving the fist bump when somebody else is giving the high five? Anybody else have the spiritual gift of having a conversation with someone only to find out they're talking into their Bluetooth? Anybody else had that happen? Anybody had the moment where your server serves you your dinner and says, I hope you enjoy your meal, and you say, you too? Anybody else there? I hope you enjoy your meal when you eat later on, right? We Awkward moments. I want to share my worst awkward moment of human social interaction. I've never, I don't know that I've shared it in a, in a setting like this. Um, I was running at the park and I was finishing up a run and I was getting to the end and there were some ladies that were getting ready to walk and I recognized one of the ladies from the church and, uh, and she is, she's leaving the park and I recognize her and I know her because she's very, um, it's obvious who she is because she's one of those people that shaves off her eyebrows and draws her eyebrows on. And I've always been like so fascinated by this. And so I have trouble when I'm talking to her, not looking at her eyebrows. I mean, not or what the lack thereof. I mean, I just kind of dial in, just kind of stare, and I'm just thinking, don't look at, don't look at the eyebrows. The whole time I'm thinking, your eyebrows are drawn on. And I'm, I'm thinking that, and then she starts talking about, man, it was a great church last week, and the worship was just, man, the worship was just rocking. And I said, I know it was so loud, it was like rock your eyebrows off. She's going to a different church now, but she's uh, still drawing on her eyebrows. But relationships can be awkward. Conversation, social interaction can be awkward. But even though it can be awkward, it's not optional. God created us for relationships. Genesis 126, God says, let us 
make mankind in our image. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God created, he said, let us. The, there's plurality in the Godhead, the Trinity. God is community within himself. And God has made us in his image so that we would have relationships, so that we would be able to have connection and relationship, to know and to be known, to love and to, and to be loved. And in every human heart, there's this desire to to be known. There's a desire to be loved, and there's a desire to, to love. Tim Keller sums it up well. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from prestige, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. We all desire to be known and to be loved. And although relationships and conversation, knowing people and friendship and community, although it can be awkward, it's not optional. We all, we all need it. We all have this longing to, to belong. That's why when I think back to walking into the cafeteria as a freshman in high school, I, I break out in hives. Not literally, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, I, I can just get nervous just thinking about it. And I remember standing there as a freshman, and the forces of acceptance and rejection were so powerful then. And you know what? They haven't died down. We all long to belong. We all want to be known, and we want to know others, and we want to be loved, and we want to love others. God has put that in us. Jesus shows up on the scene, kicks off his ministry. What's the first thing he does? He gathers 12 disciples. He formed the first small group, pulls those 12 disciples around him, and he chooses these 12, and it's quite, I mean, to think about who he chose— who did he choose when he started ministry, man? I mean, these guys, they weren't, they weren't perfect. I mean, there they were awkward moments all over the place. They argued all the time. They rarely got what he was talking about. The thing they argued about the most was who was the greatest. And they tried to keep the children away from him when he wanted the children close to him. Close to him. They promised to be with him in his greatest trial, and when it came, they ran away. When Jesus said it was time to, to stay awake and pray, they fell asleep. When Jesus said it's time to sleep and he was taking a nap, they woke him up to pray. There was one time they, they said, should we call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans? And Jesus said, no. And there was another time when, uh, when they, they said, hey, we saw a man casting out demons in your name. Should we go, uh, should we go stop him? Jesus said, no. The disciples, they, uh, you think about it and who he had. Thomas was a doubter. Judas was a thief. Levi was a tax collector. and Peter cut off some, some dude's ear. I mean, Jesus gathered this. Why did he pull them around him? Why did he gather this ragtag group of disciples? It's because he saw greatness in other people, and he believed that these guys could change the world. And Jesus is still gathering ragtag disciples, and he still believes that you can change the world. He believes that you can be like him. But I also want you to see the reason that Jesus gathered these disciples around him is because Jesus needed relationship. Jesus needed people to love. Not in some emotionally insecure um, siphon the life out of people, kind of need people <laughs> to love him. But Jesus needed relationships because he was fully God and fully man. And needing relationships is part of being truly human. I love how Henry Nouwen puts it. He said when Jesus was doing ministry, he went from solitude, from this time away, and then he went into community and went, to, went into ministry. So he went from solitude, he pulled away with God, and then he went to community, he pulled disciples around him, and then he went to ministry, and they did ministry together. And you read through the Gospels, there's this rhythm of solitude and community and ministry and solitude and community and ministry. And some of you are living just solitude and solitude and solitude and trying to do ministry, ministry, ministry. And some of you just living in community and community and community and leaving out the solitude and the ministry. And if we want to walk in the way of Jesus, if we want to be like Jesus, it requires the components of the life of Jesus. That so we would have this rhythm of grace in our life of solitude and community and ministry. And that we would, he would, we would get along with him and he would fill us up and we would share it with others and then we would give it to the world. 
But Jesus had those relationships and Jesus needed those relationships and you need those relationships, relationships too. Um, Academic research is figuring out what God's been saying all along about relationships. In fact, Harvard uh, did some research tracking the lives of 7,000 people over nine years. And they found that relationships are life-giving. Here's what they discovered. That they found that the most isolated people are three times more likely to die than those with strong relational connections. People who had bad health habits, such as smoking, poor eating habits, obesity, or alcohol use. Not, not, you know, I'm not pushing it. I'm just telling, I'm just telling you to stay, okay? Smoking, poor eating habits, obesity, or alcohol use, but had strong social ties, lived significantly longer than people who had great health habits but were isolated. Here's what this means. It means it's better to eat Krispy Kreme with your friends than eat broccoli alone. That's what that means. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Academic research is figuring out you guys do know what Krispy Kreme is, right? I mean, okay, come on. I just, I hold those donuts before I eat them, and I just look at them. And then I sing, all of me loves all of you. All your curves and all your edges. All your perfect imperfections. I have a love relationship with donuts. But anyway, we'll just keep on going. But Jesus loved his friends. Jesus loved his friends like they had never been loved. And sometimes he got in their faces, and sometimes he pushed them, and sometimes he challenged them. And I'm sure sometimes they wish he would love them just a little bit less. Because Jesus, Jesus encouraged them, and Jesus led them, and Jesus challenged them. But when they were with Jesus, they knew that they were loved like no one else had ever loved them. He was the most loving man that they had ever seen. And in the end, he died for love. And before he went to the cross, he gathered them together. He huddled up his small group in a small room. And they sat around together and he said, A new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In other words, he's saying, I want you to be the most loving group of people in the world. The greatest advertisement for Jesus is how we love. It's not a t-shirt. It's not a bumper sticker. It's not any of the Christian paraphernalia. The greatest advertisement for Jesus is how we love. He said, that's how they'll know. Listen, that's good news. It means you don't have to be the best looking. You don't have to be the smartest. You don't have to be the most put together. You just have to be the most loving. That's his call for us. That's our call sign as, as followers of Jesus, the way that we love other people. He calls us to love. I want to talk tonight about what gets in the way of that. (laughs) I want to talk tonight about how we can experience life-giving relationships. I want to talk tonight about the way Jesus wants his love to flow through you. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 1. And we're going to read verse 5. He says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, If any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Paul says, if you've been given any love, if you've been given any encouragement, if you've been given any compassion, if there's any tenderness in you, if you've inherited all those things from God, then by all means, for heaven's sake, share it and give it. Because when you take those things from God and you don't give it, you become a hoarder. You hoard what God has freely given you and you pile it up and you keep it. And he's saying, I want you to share it. I want you to be a conduit. I want, it to, I want you to let it flow through you. If you've been to the Holy Land, you know the difference between the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. The Jordan River flows freely and it gives life. The Dead Sea is dead. You guys have been 
biblical geography majors in here, but the Dead Sea is dead. It has no life. It's full of death because there is no outlet. And so many times in the faith, we, we make it about us and we begin to consume the things of God, consume the things, and we're, we don't look for opportunities to pour out. We don't look for people to share it with. And Jesus said, this is how they'll know. This is how Miriam will know. This is how Indiana will know. This is how Iowa will know. This is how the world will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. What gets in the way? I mean, God wants his love to flow through us. It's like a straw. The Gulf Stream can pass through this straw. If this straw is aligned with the Gulf Stream, that current that runs through the Atlantic, that mighty current, it can pass through this straw if this straw is aligned with the Gulf Stream. But if the straw is not aligned, there's no flow. God's love, his desire is that it would flow through you. And if you are aligned with him, his love will flow through you and flow his tenderness, his compassion, his encouragement, his joy, what he has given to you. And Paul says, if you've been given any of that, then make my joy complete by giving it to others. Let that flow through you. So my question is, what keeps us from letting it flow through us? What causes our life to get out of alignment? What leads us to be a people who, who claim the name of Jesus and receive his love and sing about his love, but not share his love with others Paul helps us with that too he gives us two things that take us out of alignment and he gives us one thing that brings us back into alignment but I, just, I, I think a lot of it has to do with um, the fact that some people are hard to love some people are just hard to love see the sign of spiritual maturity is not how many bible verses you know it's not how many you have memorized. It's not um, how loud you can pray in your spiritual vocabulary. It, it, the gauge of your spiritual maturity is not even how you pray at the table. It's how you love the people around the table. You want to know if you're more spiritual mature than you were yesterday? Are you more loving than you were yesterday? That's spiritual maturity. How you love. It's being aligned with the Father. Well, why do we, why do we get turned sideways? I think one of the reasons is because there are EGRs. Rick Warren says that there are some people who are extra grace required people. He says in every small group, there's an EGR. Every time you gather with a group of people, there's at least one EGR. And he says, if you don't know who the EGR is in the group, then it's you. <laughs> And I want to tell you, I want to encourage you. It's something that I do when I get around EGR people sometimes. And I realize that I'm an EGR person sometimes. You have to realize that you're, an EG, you're somebody's EGR. Yes, even you. I'm just kidding. I was just pointing that direction. I'm not, um, <laughs> but we're all somebody's EGR. And when I get around somebody that's EGR, instead of trying to muster up love for them, this is what I pray. I say, God... You love me, and you love them. Would you love them through me? Rather than trying to... I don't know what that was, but rather than trying to, to make love happen. I'm pretty sure I'll never do that again. But rather than trying to muster up the love, I just make it a prayer. God, you love me, you love them. Would you love them through me? God, you love them, you love me. Would you love them through me? God, would you let me be a, a conduit of your love? And that's what he wants to do. He wants to love people through you. So let's talk about what gets in the way of that. And we're going to look at it from this passage in Philippians. First one, he says, um, he says there are two things. Paul says in verse 3, he says it's selfish ambition and vain conceit. Selfish ambition and vain conceit. What's selfish ambition? Let me tell you a story. Ten years ago, um, I was a student pastor, and I got a phone call. And I'll just tell you before, um, before, before we get to the phone call, my, my mantra in life, if you ask me, what do you want to do, what's, what's your goal? I would say, I want to do great things for God. 
I remember my wife sitting across the table from me. She wasn't my wife at the time. We were just dating. We were in college. And she asked me, she said, what's your dream? I said, baby, I want to do great things for God. I get this phone call. And it is a, uh, a director of a national conference giving me a call. And he said, uh, he said, Kevin, he said, I just want to give you a call. And I want to ask if you'd be willing to come speak at our conference. He said, let me tell you a little bit about it. He said, uh, Francis Chan will be speaking at the first four sessions. And you'll be speaking at session five. He said, we called, um, we called Rob Bell and we called Beth Moore, and neither one of them could do it. This is back when people called Rob Bell a lot. And, um, I'm, just, I'm just saying, they, he, they called Rob Bell and Beth Moore, and neither one of them could do it. And he said, uh, he said I wanted to know if you could do it. You'd be, you're going to be talking about Jesus in the Old Testament. And I was like, uh, yeah, let me pray about it. Yeah. Francis Chan, yeah. He said, oh, Brennan Manning is also going to be speaking at the conference. And he said, uh, he said, does that sound like something you want to do? I said, absolutely. And I thought, you know what, this is it. I'm about to do great things for God. I'm about to go. This is going to be the time when I do great things for God. And so I began planning this talk. And he said, can you send me a, uh, a bio and a headshot? And I didn't have a headshot, but I went and got my wife to take a really good picture. And, uh, <laughs> and I tried to write up this bio that made me sound a whole lot better than I am. And I sent that in. And they put it up on the website. And it had Francis Chan, Kevin Queen, Brennan Manning. I was like, I'm about to do great things for God. And I went back to the page. Um, I'd go back to the page. I mean, I wouldn't go every single day. But I would go sometimes and look at that. And then one day they took me down. So it was just Francis Chan and Brendan Manning. And I got a little ticked. I'm like, God, how can I do great things for you if my picture's not on the website? <laughs> but I still did the conference. I got down there and uh, we got the notebook and all the different preachers had their own notes in there for people. And session five was blank. And I'd send in the notes. And I'm got, God, how can I do great things for you if my name's not in the book? And it's like he pulled me away and said, Kevin, do you realize at this point I can have anybody get up there and give that talk? Okay. Well, I planned that talk for eight months. And I got up there and I gave that talk. And the only way I can describe it, it was like when I was up there speaking, it was as if every bit of anointing that God had put on my life was removed. And I was just standing up there talking. And it was like God's hand was off me. This most harrowing feeling that I, I can remember. And when I got done, I went and I sat down next to my wife. I looked over, I said, How do you think it? I said, How do, how do, how do, how do um, well, I just wanted her to say, You know, that was great. But she said, What'd you think? How'd you think it went? I'm like, well, I know how it went. When your own wife can't even find something to really encourage you on, that's a <laughs> And I started to go into a mild depression. And I got home, and I opened up a book that I'd received at Amazon. It was in the mailbox. I opened it up, and it was a book called Full Service by Dr. Sing Yang Tan. And on the second page of that book, he said, many a young man has said that they want to do great things for God. Okay, we'll read it. Many young men have said that their life is about doing great things for God. But really, that just means that they want to be famous, successful, and well-known while taking God along for the ride. Rather than doing great things for God, a better aim of one's life is doing things for a great God. Is it the Holy Spirit just tapped me on the shoulder and said, Kevin, why don't you just do things and let me be the great one? And so now my mission in life is to do things for a great God. And so whether I'm leading a small group or whether I'm preaching at church or whether I'm preaching the prison or whether I'm wrestling with my kids or I'm on a date night with my wife or whether I'm here at chapel, I just want to do things and let God be great. But God redefined greatness in that season for me. See, true greatness is not being known. It's being a person worth knowing. 
And some of us are going after fame, and we're going after how many, how many followers we have on Instagram or on Facebook, Instagram, and how many friends we have on Facebook, and how many followers we have on Twitter, and how many likes we got, how many realize we're going, how, how known are we? But my question is, are you a person worth knowing? How are you loving? See, selfish ambition will take you out of alignment. The other thing he says that will, will take us out, he says it's vain conceit. He says vain conceit. What's vain conceit? Narcissism. We have all kind of words for it. Pride. Any other words? Conceit. Arrogance. Self-centeredness. We've got a lot of words for it in our culture. But if I had to come up with an icon for it, you know what I'd choose? I'd choose the selfie. I, uh, you guys know how this works. I mean, you got the phone. I'm mean, just curious. How, how many of you have ever taken a selfie? This is just, this just confession. Confession is good for the soul. I think most of us have taken a selfie. But I did read recently that men who post selfies are more likely to be narcissists and psychopaths. Men who regularly post selfies. Somebody in this room is going to start deleting a lot of selfies on their phone overnight. <laughs> And tell my daughter, don't date guys who post selfies. Don't date, period. But if you do, don't date guys who post selfies. See, the thing about a selfie, and, and, and you guys, don't judge people who post selfies because we all have a tendency to look at ourselves a little too much and enjoy looking at ourselves, don't we? I mean, when you get a picture back, even if, you're, or if somebody else takes a groupie, you know, and everybody's, you got, everybody's in the group, and you get that picture, who's the first person you look at in the picture? You look at you. And you look at you and you're like, if you're looking good, it's a good picture. Everybody else's eyes could be closed like this. And you're going, hey, that's a good picture. Let's do it. But if it's a bad picture, can we do this again? Can we all get in here and do it again? See, we all have a tendency to focus on ourselves a little too much. But on your phone, if you're you're taking a picture on your phone, you've got another button. If you have a front-facing camera, and that camera has two different ways it can go. You can either focus on others or you can focus on yourself. And inside all of our lives, inside all of our minds, we have a camera that can either focus on ourselves or we can focus on others. We can either live a, a selfie kind of life or we can live a life that's others-focused. Uh, really, it goes this way. You can either live, here I am, or you can live, there you are. Whenever you walk into a room, when you walked into this room tonight, it was either, here I am, or it was, there you are. And what I find so compelling about Jesus is that if anybody could have walked in a room and said, here I am, it was Jesus, right? Because Jesus is the I am. So when the I am comes in the room, the I am can't say, here I am. But Jesus never walked into a room saying, here I am. He walked in saying, there you are. And there you are. And there you are. And there you are. And there you are. Are you a here I am person or are you a there you are person? Bank and see. It, it, takes us, it takes us out of alignment. And he says, he calls us to be a there you are kind of people. And then he tells us how to do that. Just gets real practical. He says, rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Now, here's where we got to be honest. Most of us, many of us, don't value people like Jesus values people. We value people like the world values people. Let me show you what I mean. Can I, can I get you guys? Can y'all come on up here? And can y'all come up here? You sat on the front row. Come on up. And uh, y'all come on up. All the front row. Let's come on up. Come on up on the platform. Let's get up here. <clears throat> and um, I'm going to need you to get in the line. And everybody, uh, why don't we do this? Everybody face uh, that direction. Everybody face that direction. We'll get in a single file line. And so this, this, is, this is where we get into, into real talk. Okay? And this doesn't work if you're not honest with yourself. See, in each one of our minds, we all have a line. And we have this line going on in our mind. And in a moment, in an, in an instant, we can, we can kind of size people up. And in, the, in our line, we are all somewhere in our line. What's your name? Johannes. Yo- Johannes? Yeah. Did I say that right? Yo-yo. Yo-yo. <laughs> We're all somewhere in the line like yo-yo. And see, there are people that are in front of us that we consider in front of us, and there are people who are behind us that we consider behind us. 
People in the front, we often say, people in the front, we put people in the front who have more, who have more stuff, who have more cool, who have more influence, who have more reputation, who have more gifting, who have more talent, who have more ability, who have more of the stuff we want. We often put those people in front of us in this cool line that's in our mind, but then we've also got people who are behind us, people who we consider as having less, and in a moment, we can size somebody up. See, if we're not honest with ourselves, this doesn't work. But I mean, you can be at the gas station and size somebody up. You can be on the ball field and size somebody up. You can be in class. First day, new class, you can size everybody up in the room. And you either put people in front of you or you put people behind you. And so we've got this cool line going on in our mind. We've got this line of value. And we, don't, we oftentimes don't value people like Jesus values people. We value people like the world values people. We put people in front of us and we put people behind us. And then the whole game becomes, how do I move Come on, yo-yo. How do I move? That's just fun. How do I move and get ahead? And when we're focused on getting ahead, whether it's cool or whether it's, whether it's, uh, whether it's stuff, when we focus on getting ahead, all we give the people behind us is the back of our head. And when all someone gets is the back of your head, how valued do they feel? See, there are certain rules to the line, and you guys know the rules to the line. What? If you're in a line, and you over at McCon, I mean, you know how it works. I mean, you get in line, and you stand in line, and you face ahead. If you want to create an awkward moment at McCon, you know, you're waiting for your little your coffee, just go ahead and turn around. That's just a, that's an awkward moment right there. I mean, we know how lines work. Do you guys know each other? Okay, well, all right, we're good, we're good. Do now. Um, We know how lines work. You face the front and you try to move forward. But here's what Jesus did. Jesus, what's your name? Caleb. Caleb. Jesus got out of line. And Jesus went to the back of the line. And see, this messed with the religious establishment. Because the religious establishment, it was all about being religious and being pious and being to the front and getting to the front of the line. And they had the marginalized and the oppressed and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the, they put in the back of the line. They said, no, the back. And Jesus just kept messing them up. Jesus kept going to the back of the line. And he said, you know what? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, you want to see how God treats people? Look at me. And Jesus went to the back of the line. In fact, he grabbed 12 disciples. He grabbed 12 disciples and he said, come follow me. And they thought, this is awesome. We're going to get a fast pass to the front of the line. Jesus said, no, we're going to the back. <laughs> and then he really messed with them. And he said, this is the kingdom. The kingdom of God. In the kingdom, the last is the first. And in the kingdom, the greatest is the least. And in the kingdom, that which you do to the least of these, you've... That which you've done to the least of these, you've... And sometimes we get in seasons of our life where we're like, where are you, Jesus? Where are you, Jesus? And we're facing the front trying to get ahead. And the reason we're saying, where are you, Jesus? Because he's in the back of the line. You want to find Jesus? Find the most vulnerable person in the room and go serve them. You want to find, you want to find Jesus? Go to the place where the oppressed are. Go to the place where the person is lonely. Go to the place where the person feels all alone and wonders if there is a God. You go there. That's where you find him. See, revival comes in our lives when we chase the heart of God, but not just in a room like this, but when we chase the heart of God by loving the people he loves. And we can get so caught up with selfish ambition and vain conceit that the people who we've considered behind us, all they see is the back of our head, and they don't see the face of Jesus telling you he's calling us to go to the back of the line you guys give it up for give it up for these volunteers you guys say awesome don't have to see now when somebody goes to the back of the line it messes with you i mean i remember uh my dad called me up and he said hey you want to go play golf and uh, we're going to play at this, he told me this course, Sage Valley. It's like one of the top six courses in America. And I'm not that good of a golfer, but I was like, absolutely. And we went to this course, and it's in South Carolina. It's built to rival Augusta National. It's not, I mean, it's not a rival of Augusta, but it's really nice. And get out there and playing with a caddy. First time I've ever played with a caddy. 
And he's telling me like what club to use. And I get on that. <laughs> I hit the ball. And it goes in the woods. And he said, man, if I'd known you were going to be doing that, I'd worn hiking boots. Real encouraging kind of caddy. <laughs> and so we're playing and we get, get going and we get to the turn and they've got this nice little clubhouse. And there at that clubhouse, they had these gourmet sandwiches. And my dad and I sat down inside this clubhouse, sweet tea, gourmet sandwiches. And my dad looks out the window and sitting outside on the curb are our two caddies. And my dad looks at the caddies and he asks the server, he said, what about the caddies? Do they get lunch? And she said, well, they get a pack of crackers and a Coke. And my dad looked down at his sandwich and he broke his sandwich in half and he got up and he walked outside and he went down and he sat down on the curb next to his caddy and he gave him the other half. I sat there and I looked at my sandwich And I got up, and I went outside, and I sat down next to my caddy, and I gave him the other half. When people go to the back of the line, it's contagious. There are some of you in this room that God is going to break your heart. He's given you a passion for something, but for some reason, you're facing the front. And if you'll just go... If you'll just follow his heart, if you'll just go and serve, listen, it will create a movement. There are other people who are, who are wanting to follow, who are waiting to follow. They're just waiting for you to lead. They're waiting for somebody who'd be courageous enough to say, enough of this world system. I'm going to the back of the line. I'm going where the kingdom is. I want to experience Jesus. And there are people who are at the back of the line in life and saying, is there a God? And where's Jesus? And where's the gospel? And Jesus said, when the kingdom comes, that the gospel will be preached to the poor. The oppressed, that they'll be set free. The blind will have their eyes open. The captives will be, be set free. See, you know why when the kingdom comes, that the gospel goes to the poor? Because it takes a kingdom mentality to go to the back of the line. Everybody else is facing front moving ahead and I believe that tonight God wants to break our hearts God wants to break our hearts for how we've had this selfish ambition this vain conceit and we valued people like the world and we slapped Jesus name on it and he's calling us tonight to be a people who would who would say, God, would you break my heart? Would you break my heart for what breaks yours? Would you, would you make me into a person who goes to the back of the line? Would this be a turnaround kind of night in your life in the way you value people and love people? <laughs> See, Jesus gathered his disciples around, pulled them around him, and he showed him what brokenness looks like. He broke the bread and shared the juice and he washed their feet. Last time his small group was together. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. But then he was also telling him, go serve, go love. Go to the back of the line. James 4, 6 tells us God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In other words, if you wrap your life around yourself in selfish pride, then God will work in opposition of you. He said he gives grace to the humble. In other words, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. See, you're going to know the hand of God on your life either way. Either he's going to be doing this or he's going to be doing this. It has everything to do with how you humble yourself. You can't be filled with the Spirit and full of yourself at the same time. 
but God wants to fill you with the Spirit. But in order to be filled with the Spirit, you have to be broken. So I want to ask that you get this little cup, communion cup in your hands. And I want you to I want you to think about your own relationships. I want you to think about the way that you've been treating others. I want you to think about this call of Jesus to move against the vain conceit of this world and move against the selfish ambition and to have an ambition that's greater than selfish ambition, to have an ambition for his glory and for his name, to follow him to the back of the line. And so if your heart is, God, I want to be that kind of person, Lord. Would you, would you break my heart for what breaks yours? Would you break my heart for my selfish pride? Would you break off this vain conceit? Would you break off this selfish ambition? God, would you break my heart for the least of these? Would you break my heart for the marginalized and for the oppressed? God, would you break my heart for, for the way that I've just I've faced it, my own agenda? I've faced my own agenda. I've faced my own way. And God, I've, I've pursued my own self. And Lord, I'm asking that you would break my heart for what breaks yours, if that's your prayer tonight, let it be known. There's, there's no stopping this army. There's no stopping. It's a movement. As broken people, if we will follow our master, our rabbi, our Messiah, Jesus, if we will follow him to the back of the line, he'll turn this campus upside down. He'll turn this community upside down. He'll turn this city upside down. He'll turn this place right side up. The kingdom of God will come. Up there will come down here. His value system will come down here. People will begin to be treated as Jesus treats him. They'll experience his love. They'll experience his grace. They'll experience his compassion. They'll experience his tenderness. They'll experience the attitude of Jesus. And you are his chosen vessel. But to be a vessel, you have to be broken. And the reality is tonight, it doesn't stop there. Because he is broken for the lost. He wept over Jerusalem because they did not know. But God is calling us to deeper places of brokenness to share his burden and to be broken for those who do not know. Those on this campus who do not know. Those in your family who do not know. Jesus said, I leave the 99 and go after the one. You know what? Some of us are okay if we just have the 99. And Jesus said, join me as I go to seek and save that which is lost. Don't seek and save that which is safe. Seek and save those who are lost. And when God looks at us, he doesn't see a line. He sees sons and daughters. Some who have wandered away. He said, will you join me in my mission? And if we're honest, many of us, have experienced the great danger of selfish ambition and a self-absorbed spirituality, and it's that we stop caring about the lost. And we only care about our little deal. And God is looking, the eyes of the Lord search to and fro for somebody that he could share his heart with, for somebody that he could give his burden to. Can he trust you with his burden? Can the Father trust you with his burden? Some of you have family members, moms and dads and grandparents who, who aren't Christian. And you used to pray for them, you used to pray for their souls, you used to beg God, would you save them? But you've given up. You've given up. You've thought that they're too far gone. My grandfather passed away two months ago. 87 when he passed away. 84 when he came to Christ. 
was an atheist for his life. At 84, he came to Christ. It's not too late. The last words he said to me were, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. On his deathbed, praise the Lord. Who are the people that you were once broken for? But you're not broken anymore. You want to be broken? Get on your belly. You've tried everything else. Try tears. Ask God, I want your burden. God, give me the burden for those who are far from you. There are people on this campus that no one's praying for them. No one's begging God that they would come to know him. There are people in your classes that God has given you influence with. There are people in your dorm room. Roommates. People in the dorm. Names, faces, people. God's heart is broken. And so tonight, this altar is open. You say, God, I want your burden. Would you trust me with your burden? Would you break my heart for what breaks yours? And as the band plays, you come, kneel before him. And let's cry out for those who don't know him. Let's cry out for those who are headed toward a Christless eternity. And that God would position us as those who would go before him, who would weep before him, who would seek him, who would pray, who would intercede for the lost. You'd say, God, I want to go to the back of the line. I want to love as you love. Share your burden with me. If that's you tonight, this is your space. This is the time. It's the place where we come between the porch and altar and we intercede for the lost. It's broken for them. Let's pray. Did you hear it a little while ago when all those cups broke? It moved me when I think of the possibilities. But it's easier to break a cup than to let God break our hearts. What breaks your heart? What moves you? Who do you know that you're pretty sure doesn't know Jesus? And do you really care about that? Or is it up to you? Is it your comfort and your peace? And it's more important to you. And the reality is, if we're up to you, they're going to go to hell. Who do you know that you care enough about to say, I'll let God break my heart for them? The Bible says those who sow in tears will reap in joy. Who do you love enough to cry over, to cry out to God for? Not just who do you know, but maybe even who should you know? In my office gets prayer requests that, you know, there's a prayer request tab on the portal. 1218 last night, somebody sent this request. I don't know who it was. It comes anonymously. I'm new here this semester. I've been struggling really badly with loneliness, worrying about making friends. I'm asking for prayers that I may learn to trust God, that, I remember, that I'll remember that he has a plan and he'll provide. On top of that, just that I may have some help in finding and meeting new people, that someone or a few people will approach me and introduce themselves. That's somebody on our campus, and I don't know who it is, but my heart breaks for that person right now. It's somebody on your hall, maybe in your unit. Who do you know that you could know? Who do you know? For some of us, it's just going out of our way. For others of us, maybe it's asking God to give us the spiritual gift of evangelism. Say, God, plant something in me that I can't be contained, that can't be blamed on me, that's just you. Who do you know? You know Jesus.
but will you let his love flow through you and touch the lives of others? Guys, could we reprise that last song just a little bit? And it may be, it may be that where you are, you need to just step out from where you are and come and kneel and say, God, break my heart. Fill it up. Give me your gifts. I have a feeling we're not done here yet. And if you think God's done with you tonight, that's okay. You can slip away. But I don't think we're done. Who do you know? Who do you love? Who can say, I know you're a Christ follower because you love me enough to care? Oh, Holy Spirit, fall on us in a fresh way right now. May we be so filled that we cannot help but speak about what we've seen and heard, what we've experienced. That we would not be self-protective, but we'd be self-sacrificing. That our attitude would be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who emptied himself and went to the cross because he loved us. Oh, Holy Spirit. Work in our lives. Fill us with your love so we may love others. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Listen, love is not some theoretical thing. It's expressed in our eyes, our lives, our lips, our hands, the things we do, the people we connect with, how we, how we treat the people that we've maybe seen behind us. You know who you are? You're a beloved child of God. Whether you're a 2.7 or a 3.9, you're a beloved child of God. And he's called you to love as he loves you. Let's do that. Stay and pray if you want. Keep seeking him. He, he says, you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. But whenever it is you go, go out as an act of love making a difference in the lives of those around you who don't know Jesus or maybe who do but just need someone to say, I care. May his peace be with you. May his power flow through you. May you be people of the cross and people of love. God bless you.